help you in that process. So we're going to dive into the book of Ruth right now. I want to start by asking, I would like to take a quick poll, a quick survey here um, as we do that. How many of you either are or still have living a great-great-grandmother? Anyone, either you are a great-great, which I'm going to assume you're not a great-grandmother, Jody, or you have one still living, raise your hand. Anyone? Just very few, like a lot more at the, at the 930 service. Okay, a couple of you. Um, let me ask you this. How many of you have a great-grandmother that is still living? Like, okay, a couple more hands gone up. I see. A great-grandmother. Um, we're privileged, and my, my, grand, my grandmother, which my kid's great-grandmother, uh, Meemaw, uh, just turned 90 years old this past January, and she was here at the 930, yeah, that's right, at the 930 service. So we're grateful that Meemaw has had longevity of life, and so all of my children, including a 20-year-old son, has had the privilege of having a great-grandma. And in fact, in my family, I, I'm 45 years old. I know I look like I'm 22, but I'm about to be 45. And I still have three out of my four uh, grandparents still alive, which I recognize statistically is kind of amazing, even though I do know like, in our country right now, one of the fastest growing demographics in our nation is centenarians, the people who are turning uh, 100 years old because of increasing life expectancies. But okay, now let me ask you this. Uh, how many of you have memories of being with your great-grandmother, even if they passed away? Raise your hand real high if you got, you have memories of you knew or have been with your great-grandmother in life, and you can remember visiting her. That's, that's incredible how many hands. Um. Now, I have no memories of my great-grandmother. In fact, I, I think three out of my four had already passed away, and one uh, passed away when I was so young, I don't have any real memories, but I think it would be super cool to sit down with a great-grandmother and just interview them in regards to their whole life and discuss how the whole family sort of kind of progressed and unfolded and to catch the reactions to all the different events that have taken place. Like one of my favorite things is to hear about a person's ancestry, where they came from, where their family was from, and what they were like, what were the major events in the family, what happened to all of your siblings. I just love to hear family scoop. I don't, I mean, I love that. And so, um, my wife, Kelly, and I, we took my grandmother, Meemaw, who's 90 years old, to uh, Fiesta Tapatia a couple years back, which is a great place to eat Mexican food, uh, Fiesta Tapatia, and we just interviewed her. Like I sat down with a pen and a paper and just wrote down as many stories as I could get her to tell and to share about her whole family, like, you know, what her parents were like and her grandparents were like and all of her siblings and what happened to them and kind of catch all the stories because what I recognize is, like, you want to hear the dish on the family, at least I do, at least. But I know my grandmother now, right? My, like, like that's, I know her now, but I didn't know anything about her when she was really, really young, right? Like, I didn't even know that strippers made that much money in the 1940s. It was amazing. <laughs> that's a joke. I shared it in front of Meemaw this morning, and she said she's going to spank me later, so that's what. <laughs> but everybody has a story. Like, your great-grandma has a story, and like most stories, there are victories and there are defeats, and she has secrets. Your great-grandma, as sweet as she is or was and as delicious as that raspberry jam may have tasted, she's still a sinner, which means she's got dirt in her closet. You might not ever know what it is, and you might not ever want to know what it is, but I promise you, there's some dirt. In fact, uh, Kelly, for Christmas this past year, uh, I got her a family tree DNA gift, which means, you know, a little cotton swab to get a sample of her DNA. They send it into a database, and it comes back and tells her 
uh, where she's from, and she's as white as white comes. Like she's from Norway and Switzerland are her two where her ancestry is from. Uh, but what's interesting in the database, what they do is they link you to your closest living relative in that database. And so Kelly can see it's like a second cousin, an, a second cousin, an older guy who lives in Atlanta, Georgia. Of course, she doesn't know him. She's never met him before. But he reached out to her because he has spent his entire life looking for his biological father. Never known his biological In fact, I didn't know this existed, but you could actually hire DNA investigators. Did you know that? Like there's a whole profession of DNA investigators who try to help you find biological parents that you might have ever known uh, in your entire life. And so he reached out to Kelly to see if there might be a commonality of story that he can finally identify who his biological father is, whether alive or dead. All he knew is his mother would never share the story with him about his biological father because apparently he was a married man and his mother was from Arkansas and this married man uh, slept with his mother, got her pregnant, and then he was born. So he has no idea the story of his upbringing, at least from uh, his biological father. And so in communication with Kelly, uh, what they found out was uh, that she was from the, he was probably from the Paragold, Arkansas area, which is where all of Kelly's family is from. It's like all these pieces are coming together, like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. And, like, and it's still unfolding, so maybe a month from now I'll tell you the, the end of it. But it appears that one of her grandparents' siblings is involved in a major scandal. And I just like, this is so juicy. I love this, like... <laughs> But more than scandalous, titillating as that is, what we recognize, even in our great-grandparents, there are real stories of victories out of hardship and successes out of tragedy, an amazing turn of events and circumstances that you don't know whether it's just dumb luck or whether this happened because of my own discipline and ingenuity or whether it's God's hand in this at all. And sometimes the advantage of old age, like great-grandmother old age, is that now you have a perspective that you didn't have when you were 25, that you might not have even had when you were 50, that you might not have even had when you retired at age 65, but when you are 90 years old, you've got a much better picture of the totality. And that's why the Bible ascribes the virtue of wisdom to the elderly. And that's why in most cultures around the globe, those who are elderly are treated with great honor and great respect. Now, Unfortunately, here in America, we value uh, youth as one of our, and so we don't treat our elderly like most people do around the world. But when you're 90, it's possible that the events that took place when you were 30 now make total sense. Even if you can't explain why it happened, when you're 90, you can now look back and say, yeah, but had that not happened, I would have never been able to experience this. Or this would have never had happened in my life, that age gives you perspective, and it gives you wisdom, and it gives you understanding. Great-grandma has an advantage in regards to life because she's lived so much of it, and there are lessons she now knows that you are still decades away of being able to figure out. And with that introduction, allow me to invite you to think about the book of Ruth kind of in this way. I want you to imagine, if you will, that you are going to great-grandma's house for a visit. Great-grandma Ruth. And so you're on your way to visit great-grandma Ruth, and while you're there at her house, she does what great-grandmas do. She sets out a bunch of snacks and different foods because you're at her house, right? That's what grandmas do. Like, I'll never forget uh, the first time I met uh, Kelly's grandma uh, in Arkansas. Um, she made a feast. It was just the two of us, but, you know, she's like pot roast and 
I mean, every side. And so I thought, well, it would be rude not to eat, and I like to eat, so I just kept eating. But because I kept eating, she thought I was still hungry. So she got up and started making, she made a frozen pizza. Like, she made foods that don't even go together, but I thought, well, i got to keep eating because it would be rude not to. <laughs> the funniest thing I saw, uh, we went to church with her grandmother, and uh, the, the offering buckets went by. And she made change. She dropped a 20 and, and took a 10 and a 5 back out. It's the funniest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> Grandma said, I got a 20, but God's only going to get a 5. <laughs> 10 and a 5. <laughs> Anyhow, imagine you're going to great-grandma Ruth's house, and you want her to tell the story all over again. Tell, great-grandma, tell us all about your life again, where you're from, how you met my great-grandpa, Share about the story about your first husband who died in that tragic accident. Share about the ups and downs and what has eventually taken place that has ultimately even led to you. And now, Ruth, the book in the Bible, is not told in the first person, so Ruth isn't actually narrating it. But I do want to invite you just to hear it, so to speak, as if great-grandma Ruth is sharing the story. And so she opens up, once upon a time, and there you are, listening to the story. And she begins in chapter 1, verse 1, by saying, Back when I was a little girl, judges ruled the land. Now, side note, two things you should know quickly about this introduction. One is, whoever wrote the book of, Luke, uh, of Ruth, and we have no idea who it is, did so long after the actual story, at a time when there were now kings in Israel. There was a monarchy. And so the story is much older than when, it, uh, than when it was finally written down in the form that we have in Scripture, as is most of Scripture. And when it is written, everyone reading it has in their life experience a monarchy. And that's why it opens up the way it does. She'll say, a long, long time ago, before there were any kings, judges ruled the land. And for you kids that can't remember, we haven't always had a king. Back in the day... There were judges. Some were good, some not so good, and they would kind of spring up across Israel and they would lead God's people for a brief period of time. Now, most scholars believe that typically a judge in Israel didn't rule over all of Israel. It was typically within their own tribes or a set of tribes and their clansmen, and so it kind of was more of a regional thing at times. There might have been a few exceptions, like the great prophet Samuel seems to be able to lead the entire nation of Israel, it appears, but most seem to be kind of regional. And so think of it kind of like, um, like you would in Afghanistan with uh, regional warlords, kind of, and there's a lot of conflict, a lot of factions that are taking place. Those are the things that's probably like in the day of Israel. In fact, there's a book in the Bible right before Ruth that's actually called Judges. And one phrase that keeps coming up in the book of Judges that will tell you what it was like when great-grandma Ruth was a little girl, one phrase that comes out of Judges 17, verse 6, it says this over and over again, and in those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It comes up over and over again. And so, man, back in the day, it was kind of a rough time. There wasn't a lot of unity. There was no centralized figure or leader in Israel, even though God himself was supposed to fulfill that role. And the people found themselves falling away from God over and over again. And so in the Judges, here, here's the cycle you'll see over and over again in the book of Judges. The people sin against God. They're led into oppression by a foreign nation. The people of God turn back to God and cry out for help, and then he raises up a judge and delivers them. And that's the whole story of Judges over and over again. They sin, they fall into oppression, they repent, God raises up a judge to lead them out of oppression over and over and over again. And this is the time period. So it says at the end of verse 1, there was also a famine in the land. 
So there was a man from Bethlehem in Judah, which should sound familiar to you, because who was born in Bethlehem? Jesus. Well, there was a man who was from Bethlehem together with his wife, and they had two sons. They went to live for a while in the country of Moab because of the famine. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Milan and Kilion. That was my first husband, great-grandma says. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. So just in terms of context, so you see what's happening in the story. There was a famine in Israel, so this family from Israel, it really in survival mode, desperate for food, they take off. Elimelech, who's from Bethlehem, his wife and two sons, and they go from Bethlehem to the land of Moab, to which great-grandma Ruth says, I'm from Moab. I'm a Moabitess. And this could be a source of embarrassment. Because Israelites do not think highly of Moabites. Basically, my first husband and family were refugees from Israel in Moab. We hadn't built a wall yet, nor was there strong immigration policy, so they just wandered on in to eat. Now, just by way of a historical background in Moab, uh, you know where Moabites came from, like their descendants? Here's how you know if they're an enemy of Israel. Because when you hear their origination story, it usually comes with some sexual scandal and it's sort of an ethnic joke. And the same thing will happen in the book of Genesis with the whole line of Ham and Canaan, and the same thing happens with uh, the Moabites. Moabites come from descendants of Lot. You remember the story of Abraham and Lot? So you got Uncle Abraham and he has a nephew named Lot. I don't know if you remember that story. In the end, uh, Abraham and Lot and his family are spared. At the end of the story of Lot, Lot has two daughters. And they get desperate because they can't find a man. And so together, the daughters plot, you know what we ought to do? We should get dad really drunk, and then I'll sleep with him and get pregnant. And then the next night, we'll get him drunk again, and then you sleep with him, and then you get pregnant. And that's exactly what happened. The two daughters slept with their dad lot after he got drunk. They both got impregnated. The oldest daughter gave birth to a son named Moab, and all the descendants of Moab were the Moabites. That's what Ruth is. And that's how you know that the Moabites were not highly favored in regards to the eyes of the Israel, that they were often uh, considered enemies because of how we tell the stories of how Moabites even came about, the scandalous, incestuous story, which is gross. But Ruth is a Moabitess. And now comes the great tragedy. Verse 3, now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was just left then with her two sons. And they married Moabite women, so they married foreign women. One named Orpah, not to be confused with Oprah, (laughs) and the other, Ruth, that's great-grandma. And they had lived there about 10 years. Both Milan and Kilion then, they also died. And now Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, if we were to tell this story today, like if this happened to one of us here in the room, it would be tragic in itself. Like just that is a complete tragedy to be both a widow and then to be without your children, right? To, be, uh, to experience that. But it is infinitely more tragic in this day and age because there's no social security, there's no social safety net. Like, and what's happening is Naomi is a refugee in a country that is not her own. She doesn't even have extended family. In the story at this moment, she's lost everything. Her husband would be her source of security that ties her to her past, and in regards to her future, they're tied to her sons. Her sons will be uh, obligated to make sure that their mother's always taken care of and provided for. When she loses both, she is truly destitute, a foreigner from Israel in the land of Moab, 
And so what the story is telling us is things for, for Naomi are terrible. Now, in this situation, Naomi overhears through the grapevine that the famine in Israel has passed. So it says this in verse 6. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Now, this is Naomi's only hope. If she can make it back to the land of Judah, she has a much better chance of at least some benevolence, that is, if people don't resent her for being gone so long or question whether she's now more loyal to Moab than she is to Israel. But going back doesn't resolve everything. She is still destitute. The hope she has is at least in Judah, she might have extended family who will be kind and show pity to her. But along the way, she looks at her daughters-in-law, and she begins to enter into a negotiation. It says in verse 8, then Naomi said to her, her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud, and they said to her, we'll go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you even come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to even have another husband. And even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and they gave birth to sons, would you really wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud uh, again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. See ya. <laughs> but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. You should go back with her. Now, what I, I find this totally interesting. Even though her, their husbands are dead, there still seems to be some obligation to Naomi. And I don't know, I really don't understand if this is a legally binding thing or if this is just a cultural norm or if this is just sentimentality. But they seem to be really close to Naomi, so much so that they're inclined to go with her, leave their hometown to go back to Israel. But Naomi sets them free. Why would you come back with me? Go back to your families, find other husbands, have kids, have a wonderful life. And all this could be completely sincere. Maybe she really does love their, her daughters-in-law that much. It seems a little strange to me as most mother-in-law, daughter-in-law stereotypes don't really fit this picture. But what you have here is Orpah feigns a little loyalty. Oh, no, I'll, I'll go with you. No, seriously, you should just go back to your home. Okay, see ya. Have a good trip. But great-grandma Ruth says, I just hang on to her. I wasn't going to leave her. I mean, I refused. If she was going to Judah, I was going to Judah. And I looked her straight in the eyes, and I made a promise before God. And so listen to what Ruth says to Naomi. Verse 16, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I'm going to go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything, if death separates you uh, from me from you. Now, I don't know if you hear that language, but it's, isn't that amazing, powerful language? Like, these are the things that we sing about, right? Where you go, I go. Where you stay, I stay. Like, that's from Ruth here. Like, your people will be my people. 
and your God will be my God, and I want to be, I'm, I'm going to be buried next to you. And then, very dramatically, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Now that is loyalty. That's fidelity. That's commitment. I mean, I, in my mind, I think, man, could you imagine if just people got married with that mindset? Like, just kind of that severity of like what we're doing together in terms of covenant. And so I picture all the grandkids just sitting around thinking, dang, Grandma, why would you do that? And asking, seriously, great-grandma, why would you leave everything you've ever known, all of your family, your way of life, your traditions, everything, and then you become an immigrant and a refugee in a foreign land that you've never been to? And I'd love to hear the answer back from Ruth. I'd be curious to know. And what I picture in my head, of course, I don't know, but I picture her saying something like, you know, I'm really not even sure. I just knew I was supposed to go with her. And maybe she'd talk about loyalty, or maybe she'd talk about family, maybe, I mean, I don't know. I just think deep down, she made a decision in the moment that she just knew I'm supposed to go back with you to Judah. And sometimes those are the most uh, impacting decisions we make in life, isn't it? Sometimes it's like a, an impulsive moment, like we can't even explain why we did, but we did, and it changed the entire trajectory of life. Like I was sharing with you, I was telling the story uh, of, of meeting with my grandmother and just asking her, our, our stories, and what I want to know is my grandfather, Peepaw, uh, was from Fort Smith, Arkansas. How did he get from Fort Smith, Arkansas to Indiana? Like it didn't make sense to me how that took place. And so my grandma was telling me the story that after World War II, my grandfather fought in World War II, they came back home to Fort Smith, Arkansas, and they looked for jobs, but they couldn't find any. Like, there just wasn't a lot of people hiring, couldn't find a job. And they had a family friend that owned a, a, a gas station. And so he was there with one of his friends one day just at the family gas station. And a couple from Elwood, Indiana, was driving through on vacation and stopped to fill up their gas tank. And so they were helping out this family fill up their gas tank and just got into this conversation. And this couple said to my grandfather, who lived in Fort Smith, Arkansas, there's jobs in Elwood, Indiana. If you want some, you should come to Indiana and find a job there. And my grandfather just kind of spontaneously and impulsively packed everything up, left his family in Fort Smith, Arkansas, and he moved to Elwood, Indiana to go find a job. And it's just amazing. Like, that's it? Just a strange couple from Elwood, Indiana. You should come to Elwood, Indiana. And my grandfather, and had he not done that, he would have never met my grandmother there in Elwood, Indiana. And had they never met, they would have never had Chucky Barrington. And had they never had Chucky Barrington, they would have never had Sam Barrington, nor Sarah Barrington, but I think that would have been a better deal not to have her if she would have... Did you just flip me off in church? Is that? <laughs> Verse 18 says this. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. She stopped nagging her. And so what happens is they finally arrive back in Judah, and here's the reception. Verse 19. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem, and when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the woman exclaimed, can this be Naomi? It's been over 10 years. Is this Naomi? Like she left, she came back. Naomi's back in town. But verse 20, don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Uh, Naomi's a party pooper. Like, hey, it's Naomi. Don't call me that. 
Naomi, how are you doing? Uh, so bad, I don't want you to call me Naomi anymore. I want you to call me Mara. You know what Mara means in Hebrew? Bitter. You know what Naomi means in Hebrew? Pleasant. Naomi knows that's not who I am anymore. Because of everything I've had to walk through, I now want to be known as Mara. And Naomi puts it squarely on God. The Almighty has made my life very bitter. And don't think that she didn't wrestle with this often. How many times she had to watch everyone else enjoy time with their husband as she recalled the reality that mine was taken from me. Or how many times she watched people post on their Facebook pictures of their children and she didn't have any. Or holding grandbabies and that wasn't her fortune. What does Naomi have now? Nothing. And how many times did she not probably on her bed cry out, why God? Why have you done this to me? And why both? I mean, it's one thing, it's just, just my husband, but my sons too. And so she will just say out loud, I, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Three different times she cast the blame on God with no qualifications and no rebuttal. And at this point in our story, great-grandma really has just started. There's a lot more to the story that's about to break out, and we'll cover chapter 2 next week. But as we wrap up this first chapter, I want us to step back and learn something from great-grandma's story. Now, at this point, most preachers go to familial love or loyalty or commitment, and I'm not opposed to those things. They really are in our story. And I do believe that God probably witnessed the passion and the intensity and the devotion of Ruth to her mother-in-law, and in it, it did not go unnoticed. I think God probably said, her. Look, look, look at what's in her heart for her mother-in-law, who's walked through all that she's walked through. And I think God, even from heaven, said to himself, I will make sure that she's blessed and honored for this. Even though Ruth, at the time, probably worshipped the Moabite gods. Or you could talk about being committed to Jesus with the same kind of intensity as Ruth was committed to her mother-in-law, Naomi, and all that would be right. But I want us to go to the pivotal moment that changes everything. And it's the moment that Ruth chooses to take a risk and leave Moab and everything she's always known and everything that is familiar to her to go to Judah. If Ruth had decided to stay in Moab, you know what? You would not even know a woman named Ruth. Her story would have ended as anonymously and unnoticed as any other ancient Near Eastern woman who lived in Moab. Do you even know the names of any other Moabites? I don't either. And what I'd say is for some of you, you are right now in Moab. And you're supposed to be in Judah. And you're not going to live out your, the life God has intended for you or destined for you as long as you continue to hold on to the comforts of the familiar and the known. Orpah, she decided to stay in Moab. And you know what happened to her? I have no idea. She's been lost to history. There's no telling, though, what would have happened if she, too, would have chosen to go to Judah. But some of you right now have this deep-down guttural feeling that life has more for you, that God has more for you. And you aren't getting anywhere, and you're not living out what you're supposed to live out, and you can feel it. You can feel it in the daily grind that when you start out, it's just supposed to be temporary, just a temporary station in life until you can move to better, to a new way of life, yet it seems that nothing ever changes. 
and you can feel it in the exhaustion as every birthday that rolls around, it's still the same, or every New Year's Eve, or however you mark time in your life, it's always the same, nothing is ever different. The reason, my friend, might be because you are still living in Moab, and you're supposed to pack up and go to Judah. And here's the key. Moving to Moab is the biggest, most pivotal decision you will ever make because it means that you will have to leave behind the security of comfort and familiarity and safety and routine and the known, and you'll move towards the lack of all of that. That job that you're in right now, you know is a dead end. This is as far as you're going to get, and you don't really even like it anyhow. That's because you're working in Moab, and you're supposed to be working in Judah. You know that relationship that you're in that isn't going anywhere? Listen, girlfriend. He's just playing games. You don't want the same things. You don't have the same values. It's because you're dating in Moab. You're supposed to be dating in Judah. And you know that your way of life you're in right now in Moab, it's not sustainable. You keep drinking like this, you'll be lucky to still have a liver at age 45. You keep eating like that and living that sedentary lifestyle, you'll be lucky not to suffer some serious cardiovascular consequence. Your health is in Moab. It's supposed to be in Judah. Or you know that God has given you this passion, and you could feel it. I mean, it burns inside of you. Everything in you is animated when you are moving in that passion. It was as if God knit you together to fulfill just that thing, but that passion that you have probably isn't going to make you a six-figure salary. Nobody's going to pay you that kind of money for your passion, so you keep putting it off what you know God has filled you with because you found income in Moab, but really, you're supposed to be in Judah. And you know right now that what you want to do feels beyond you, and I know it's scary. And those thoughts, what if I fail? Like, what if I'm wrong? What if I get to Judah and then I can't find a job? Or what if I get to Judah and I fall on my face and have to, in humiliation, come back to Moab? What if I finally write the essay and fill out the application and send it off to the dream college that I've always wanted to get in, and then they send back a rejection letter? And even if they do accept me, how in the world am I going to be able to pay for that and afford that? Your mind is in Moab, and it's supposed to be in Judah. You keep thinking, well, what if I jump and can't fly? And the real question is, what if you jump and can't? You aren't supposed to be in Moab. Go to Judah. Oh, I can't afford to take that much time to enter into rehab. In fact, what would others think of me? Oh, no, I know it's a risk. But the very turning point of your life awaits you in this moment of decision. That's it. I'm done with Moab. I'm going to Judah. Even if you haven't arrived yet, you at least have set foot on the road that leads you to Judah. What if counseling doesn't work out? Last time we went, it didn't do anything. What if it's just a waste of money? No, I get it. But your marriage is not supposed to be in Moab. Your marriage is supposed to be in Judah. You should go for broke and move to Judah. Now listen, you've got to figure out today for yourself, what is your Moab? And where is your Judah? And you need the Spirit of God to guide you in that because, listen, I don't want to get any calls from your spouse this week saying, thanks a lot, Sam. I'm so angry at you. Everything was fine until your stupid sermon, and now my husband just quit his job and says his Judah is to be a circus performer in the county fair. Okay, don't, listen, seek the Spirit of God. And if the Spirit of God tells you to join the circus, God's peace. But here's what great-grandma knows. Great-grandma knows that there is a moment in everyone's life where there is a massive fork in the road. 
and they are mutually exclusive destinations, what that means is you can't do both. You're going to have to pick one. And most people choose the one of least resistance, the one of familiarity and the path of peace. But that might not be the one who leads you to Judah. Or maybe as a kid, you might have read Robert Frost's poem, Two Roads. Have you read that? Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And sorry, I couldn't travel both of them. And be one traveler, long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent into the undergrowth. Then took the other, as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that the passing there had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay, in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first to another day, yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence, Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Don't remain in Moab. Take the risk and head to Judah and see what God has in store for you there. Today I ask, what is your Moab? What is your life in your Moab? It's time to start packing, because God is calling you to Judah. And it is the most pivotal moment of your entire life. But one that one day, when your great-grandkids are gathered around you, you'll be able to say, when I did this, it changed everything. Let's stand together and let's pray. God, what we need is just revelation to know where it is that we're at. Now, for some of us, uh, we're in a station in life that you've not really even called us to. That somehow we got stuck Somehow just the circumstances around us overwhelmed us and we didn't hear you clearly, we didn't see clearly, and now it feels like we're trapped. And what we need, Lord, is your spirit to encourage us, to empower us, to embolden us, to set out on that long journey that leads us to the place that you've called us to be in. And so I pray right now for, I mean, everyone in this room, that you might begin to whisper where it is that you're calling them to, whether it's in their area of finances or work or relationship or just some other aspect of our life, Lord. We don't want to just exist in Moab. We want to live in abundance in Judah because we acknowledge and recognize that your son Jesus has called to us abundant life. So set us on a journey that receives that. This is what we ask to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.